Well, if you can, open up to the book of 2 Peter. And in a way, I thank God that we had last week off because it gave me more time to contemplate and meditate on this verse. And I am going to do something with this verse um, I normally don't do. When you preach, when you, are, when you are taught how to preach in seminary, there is specific things your professors tell you to do. And then you also have people that come to church that have certain expectations of how the preacher is supposed to preach. And um, this tie represents some of those expectations. And I honestly, I'll tell you what, a lot of my sermons I model or I'm directed by some of those expectations because I like to please people. But with this sermon, I, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I heard if you want to be a good writer, sometimes you have to shut up the voices that stop you from saying what you normally would say. And so I'm going to put my preacher expectations in this bottle and shutting them up, and I'm just going to say what I want to say. I'm going to preach the way I want to. And there's three things about me. Number one, I think in pictures. I think in images. It's just how I've been wired. My dad was an artist. He used to be a salesman, and he would take Mad Magazine and draw the pictures from Mad Magazine to advertise his products and make flyers and and I wanted to be in advertising, and I know how you do, like, uh, basically you map out an advertisement through pictures. So I think in pictures. So a lot of times I have slides up there, and I always feel guilty because in preaching class you never have slides. But I don't care. That's how I think. So today you're going to have a lot of slides with art, the way I think. You're going to see my brain. And Jared said, that's very dangerous. <laughs> you're right, Jared, very dangerous. Second thing, I'm, I'm simple. I'm, uh, I don't care about high theological terms in the sense of, I, I asked Boyd Kaler, let me give you an illustration, I asked Boyd Kaler, Boyd Kaler's one of our foresters, I asked him to make shelves for me. He came over to my house to make some shelves to put games in our closet, games like Life and um, other Monopoly. He brought over his own rough cut wood. It's not the standard lumber you get it like uh, Home Depot or something. It's not polished. It's rough cut. It's not really even stained, but it's thick. And it's sturdy. That's, that's kind of how I think I think. I'm kind of thick. I don't really, I'm not polished. So what you have isn't necessarily going to be on the big stage. I just, but I think it's sturdy because I'm trying to base it only on Scripture. I really think we have an obligation to stand, stand on Scripture alone, even if I don't say big words like propitiation and vicarious atonement of substitutionary. You know, even if I don't say that stuff, I think we have to still stand on the Word. And today, we're going to read through 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. And as I've been meditating on it, it's changed some of my previous perspectives on Christianity. I, and you'll understand this as we go through it. But I'm going to... Read this, then I'm going to walk through my slides, and then I'm going to apply this very simply. So let's open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, the title of this message is Press On, and you'll see why. Verse 5 through 11. So Peter writes, for this very reason, he just got done talking about how we receive power from Christ to 
participate in the divine nature. Amazing. That was two weeks ago. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Look at that phrase, make every effort. So what he's saying is we're going to talk about the life of faith. But he's saying it's going to take effort. You are, you have been given salvation. It's been poured or imputed into you. Well, I I lied. I wasn't going to use big words. So it's been put into you. God's life has been poured into you. Now you are to work it out. Let it come alive in your life. That's why he uses the phrase, make every effort. Then he's going to say a bunch of different words. Supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop right there and I want to show you how I think. Because you see the word starting in verse 5. You're going to have faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. I've always heard this preach where they just define the word and they go to the next word. And I'm like, that's really nice, but I just don't know how to apply it. Doesn't make sense doesn't stick. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you this picture up here of the way I think. Here's my mind right here. And this is a, what I'm going to call the progression of faith. It's going to be how you press on. Each of these is going to represent one of these words or a couple of these words. And as I go to those words, it's going to be colorized and I'm going to have a person on there. But the way I think about these words, I think about them in process to something. We have a goal. We're starting somewhere, and we're heading somewhere, and that's what this picture is about, this walk of faith. Actually, I I had about, about, um, if you go two slides up, Jonathan, right before that. No, 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 backwards, backwards. Yeah, there. Okay, about two years ago, not two years ago, it was about two years into my ministry here at Kent City Baptist, a guy came into my office, and he said, have you ever seen the bridge illustration? where you're on death and you go to life and the cross is like a bridge? I said, yeah. He goes, is there anything else? Because it's so simple. But it's, it's so basic. Does it, is there anything else to the Christian life? And I, I've always had a pet peeve with American Christianity that all we focus on really is John 3.16 to some degree. We're just about getting people saved. If they believe the gospel, let's move on and get somebody else to believe the gospel. I remember I was working in Russia, and a Russian said to me, you know, when a Russian becomes a Christian, it becomes a way of life for them. When an American becomes a Christian, it's just kind of like a a choice, but they keep doing what they've always been doing. And I'm like, that's exactly it. And what Peter's saying is faith needs to continue on. Don't just be static, continue on. Don't just get saved and you're done. I'm a Christian. Now I can go back to what I've been doing. No! It's where it begins, and that's what this whole illustration's about. So, does everything begin and end at John 3.16? No. Let's show you what I mean. Where does it begin? It begins on the far left side. It begins in death. And if you don't begin there, nothing else makes sense. A lot of Christianity has cut that out. We've cut this part out. We just talk about the good things. 
If you don't talk about the bad things, the good means nothing to you. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2. We, all of us, were dead in trespasses and sins. That means before a holy God, we're condemned. And so you can put a person there, and here he is. He's a dead man. Even though he's alive, he's a dead man. And all he has to look forward to is hell. If you don't start there, nothing else makes sense. But to me, you've got to believe this. I just find that nobody really believes that's what they deserve. The the way you can tell is if you get insulted easy, you probably really don't believe this. If you demand things, you probably really have never fully contemplated this. If you are fixated on sin and treasure and position and title, I bet you you really have never contemplated this. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is talking to the person who is walking the Christian life, but they stop. So verse 9 says, whoever lacks these qualities, meaning whoever is not building on faith, virtue, and knowledge, whoever lacks this is a lazy couch-sitting Christian. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind and having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Here's what he's saying. I love how the ESV puts it. A person who's just sedentary and is, is, is just kind of consumed with money, kind of consumed with boats and being rich and popular is nearsighted. And their nearsightedness had made, makes them blind to the full picture. They are so nearsighted that they forgot where they were. They forgot that you were really saved. I remember one time, I've told this to a number of people, I had one of the worst counseling sessions with somebody I ever had in my life. Some, sometimes being a pastor is dark, I just am telling you. And I had a counseling session that went late at night. And one of the other pastors... Was, it was a long time ago. Actually, his pastor, Jared came, or Josh Fisher, came in to get something. And as he's leaving, it's about 10 o'clock at night, and he looked at me. And he said, man, why are you here so late? Why do you, why do you put up with some of this stuff? Because I was saved from hell. I really believe I was. If I... Just a very simple principle. If I was saved from hell, and you're not supposed to preach like this, you're supposed to be polished. If I was saved from hell, everything I have now is gravy. This breath, take a breath. Oh, that's a gift. It's not deserved. Because that's where we all started. Never forget. Well, we go to the next one, and it begins with faith. So this cross represents what I would say, according to verse 4, God's escape plan. Look at verse 4, which is granted to us as precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped. Having escaped. The gospel, John 3.16, is powerful. It is so powerful, but it's got to be put in the right place. It is God's amazing escape plan. And 
You, you should know. I'm sure you know. I shouldn't say should because I don't want to make you feel guilty, but you, you've probably seen that guy with the rainbow-colored hair at the football games, John 3, 16. It's very simple. God loves you. And because he loves you, he sent his son for you. And his son was sent to die for you. And if you believe in his son, you have eternal life. You escape. It's very simple. But listen how one writer defines faith. I love how they define faith. Faith is the initial acceptance of the love of God. It's really the reason people accept the cross is because they realize in that symbol up there, that symbol is God's symbol of love. How do I know God loves me? Life, my life's falling apart. It's terrible. It's not fair. It's not fair. God's innocent son was spit on for you. He loves you. In that, if I accept that, if I accept that, God is faithful and he's just. And he brings us into eternal life, which begins the moment I accept it, and it looks like this. It becomes alive green fields that I finally get to walk on. I'm not standing on ground that's shaking on solid ground. I've got blue skies, which is hope of a great tomorrow. And then I've got this, what I've called this vision of God up there, that God reveals to me who he is. And I stand there. I, I did this uh, picture a long time ago, probably about 12 years ago. But as I've been thinking through it, I realize more and more as you walk closer to God, there's a cloud. We, sometimes there's times when you never see him. But when you first get saved, you see a vision of him, that he is amazing. And then what happens with this vision, he gives you an understanding of who you are and why you've been made. And that's what this word virtue means. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And so when you catch a vision of the greatness of God and God's love, you start to understand why you're here. And here's what virtue is. Virtue is living the life you've been designed to live. Another verse is, another words for this are excellence. You could put it like this. One writer said, what is the virtue or the excellence of a knife? It's to cut. What is the virtue or the excellence of a horse? It's to run. What is the virtue or the excellence of a human being? We have, you and I, we've been made to conform to the image of Christ. We, no one else, gets to display Christ. Paul says, it's one of the most beautiful verses in chapter 1, verse 15, he he set me apart from birth because he was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's why we've been made. Listen to some of the qualities of what it means to have virtue. Qualities in virtue are qualities of honesty, integrity, loyalty, courage, a sense of honor, humility, modesty, an ethical propriety at what gives man his worth. And in here, there's this sense of honor. And I see, Mike, I was thinking, Mike Buckner used to work with me in youth, youth ministry. 
And there was one camping trip. Remember that camping trip? We had a bunch of guys. And Mike, you, you, Mike knows what I'm talking about. We had a bunch of guys, and they were doing things what I would say are rather gross. Do you remember that camping trip, Mike? We had it at your land. And some of the guys said, we have freedom in Christ. We can do whatever we want to do. And I said, that's fine. And they were doing some gross things, and they were so gross that some of the new kids that came didn't want to go by the campfire because what the guys were doing was kind of gross. And I, and, it was, and I was raised with a dad who hated bathroom humor, like he hated it. It drove him crazy when all you talked about farting and burping and everything's gross, toilet humor. My dad would get mad about it. And, uh, but what these guys were doing was sort of, it was along that same kind of line. And I remember just asking those guys, I said, first of all, these new kids feel uncomfortable. They don't want to come into this campfire. But secondly, how would you feel if Jesus was doing this? Would you want to follow a gross person? We have been made to be noble heirs of the king of the universe. We're holy. We're set apart. We're not idiots. Virtue is somebody you look to and say, they are different and they, are of, they have value. That's what we've been designed to be. And then we turn on stupid movies like Ted and the Hangover. And <laughs> no, stop it. Why? Because you're made in the image of Christ. The virtue of a knife is to cut. The virtue of a horse is to run. The virtue of a man and a woman is to be like God. And then it goes to the next word. It goes to the, oh, by the way, that same word is found in the end of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. Who called us to his own glory and excellence. That word excellence is the same Greek word for virtue. Same one. And then it says in verse 5, we are to add virtue, and this is really interesting because it's tied to knowledge. As I get a vision as I get a vision of who I'm supposed to be, then God gives me knowledge to know how to be it. Knowledge isn't just given to me to be smart. Knowledge is given to me to be virtuous, to become like Christ. We, we, we live in a, we sort of live in a, a Christian culture where people who know a lot of theology are really, they are really godly, but, or they're really good Christians, but they don't have to be godly. No, knowledge is so I can be like Jesus. I learn to become Knowledge, the word basically means this. I believe when the Holy Spirit comes in me, I'm, I'm given what's called understanding. The Holy Spirit has taught me. He's going to teach me. Knowledge puts under sight and illuminates things so I can start categorizing and understanding and gain, gain insight. That's what knowledge does. But knowledge for the sake of virtue, not for knowledge's sake. So the next thing we go to is after knowledge, we're given two words that also are linked together. Self-control and steadfastness. So the idea is that I go over, I cross the, cross the chasm over the cross, I get to this new land, but there is this kind of hard area of Christianity to climb. It's tough. And actually when I'm climbing it, I look up and it's, I don't necessarily see Christ like... It, it's hard sometimes. Jesus says, in this life, you will have 
tribulation. Here's the reason why you're a target. You're a target. Satan doesn't want you to look like his son. So he's going to tempt you. He's going to distract you. He's going to cause you to despair. Some people fall. They climb a little bit. They climb a little bit. And then they grab a rock and it falls off and they fall and they quit. I'm useless. Get back up. Listen to this quote. Self-control is concerned with pleasures. The other, the other world where it was dark, pleasures, man, that's all people live for. The immediate feeling and gratification. It's where I become myopic or I become blind. But the Spirit of God's in you. So self-control and say no. And then... Endurance, which is the same word for steadfastness, deals with sorrows, with tough times when you have to put on the cross and you got to climb and it gets hard and I don't want to anymore. Keep doing it. Why? Because that's the man who really knows Christ. It's, I'm telling you, it's hard. Christianity's hard. It's hard. But it's worth it, man. If you keep reading, if you continue on, you get to this new... There's a level called godliness. And the way I like to picture godliness is kind of like you go up to this bluff and up there's this warm cabin up there. And you finally, you get to this warm... You've, you've kind of arrived. And we call this, we have victory. There's victory in my life. Like there are points in my life where I've been walking with Christ where people recognize that God's in you. I had some teachers at Moody. I have some, I work with some pastors. They're just godly. The fruit of the Spirit, it just kind of grows off of them. People recognize that you are faithful. They can taste the fruit. Man, he's, he's got love and joy and he shouldn't, he shouldn't. Why? He's peaceful. There's a peaceful lady. Why is she so peaceful? She serves. Why? Because she has, what I would say, the image of Christ is being formed. And as you press on, there are points when you really do look like Christ. It's possible. However, it doesn't mean you arrived. When I first did this, I first did this picture, I I wrote a little story about this cabin. And I want you to listen to the cabin. And then after, I, after this cabin, my, my thoughts have changed about what you're supposed to do. But listen close. You've been going to church for years. Sunday church attendance has been a very important part of your life. Because of that fact, many of you have been involved in a number of ministries, classes, outreaches, and church programs throughout the years. You've seen great things happen in your life and the lives of others. We can call this godliness. You see, whether you know it or not, you most likely are in the lodge stage of your Christian life, or the cabin stage. I'm not talking about your age. I'm talking about your position in life. Let me explain. Imagine you're going hiking in the majestic Rocky Mountains around Denver. On your trip, you bring a backpack, climbing, camping gear, hiking stick, trail mix that will last you months. 
After the first couple weeks, you have traversed foothills, made some daring climbs up steep mountain faces, fought off an angry black bear, viewed some wonderful morning vistas, and even crossed some huge chasms in the rock by a steel cable. It's an incredible adventure. At points, you didn't think you could make it, but through skill and perseverance, you steadily make it up and down the magnificent range. Then one day... After climbing a very severe cliff of rock, you reach the top of a mountain bluff. Straight ahead is a quaint log cabin. The sign says, Welcome, all weary travelers. Make yourself at home. As you take off the heavy gear and turn on the lights, you are amazed by the general warmth of the place. There's soft couches, a stock cupboard and a fridge, soft downy bed, and a roaring fireplace. And on top of the fireplace are trophies of things you have accomplished. Wow, a WANA leader for 10 years, or Sunday school teacher, or you've led a number of people to Christ, or you were a missionary to Russia. You shine them up. Look at what I've done. You don't want to get up off the couch, though, because it's so warm and cozy, and out the door it's cold. So we stare at our trophies. We consider we've arrived, we pat ourselves on the back, and we say to ourselves, well done, good and faithful servant, but wait, isn't that God's property? Don't steal that phrase from him, that's his property, and he's going to give it to you at the right time. You haven't arrived yet. So what do you do? I used to teach it this way, there's a door in the back and it's calling you to go higher and higher and higher, and you become just more and more godly. Meditate more, you learn more, you read more, you become godlier and godlier until you get past the clouds and you're just in ecstasy all the time. That's where I kind of taught it. But, I, but after reading Peter, I view it like this. Let's look at the whole map. So we are in death, we cross the bridge, we get to this new life, we persevere, we get to the cabin, and there we stand. And we're looking down. And when we look down, what do we see? We see a guy who's getting ready to start the difficulty that's called Christianity. We see somebody who's just trying to understand the gospel. You remember when Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, came up and said, I don't get this Isaiah 53. Who is this talking about? Where it says he was like a lamb to the slaughter. Who is this? And there is somebody that you know that is dying. They're addicted. They're miserable. So then there's two more words on this list. Listen to the words. Verse 7. Add to godliness brotherly affection and brotherly affection love. So you have to ask the question like this. What would brotherly affection and love have you to do? Do I just keep walking and becoming a singular godly person or do I go back down to help? Brotherly affection means I start caring about people. I see them. The best way to put it, one of my favorite phrases about Jesus is the prostitute came to wash his feet with all of these Pharisees and the first thing it says is he saw her. And what it's meant by that is he saw her. He was broken by her. 
do you have mercy for people? Or do you just kind of have a hierarchy that I'm higher on a mountain than you and why do you keep falling down? Man, do people need mercy. That's brotherly affection. And then love. It's patient. It's kind. Keeps no record. It's incredible. What would brotherly affection and love have you to do? I believe it would have you go back down the mountain and help people up it have you, I call it the Mike Carew principle. If any of you guys know Mike Carew, he takes people out to Wyoming. Mike Carew is a, a skeleton of a man. He has, he's no fat, all muscle and bone. And he's like a, a billy goat. He can put a 500-pound pack on his back and go up a mountain and barely be out of breath. He drops off his pack, goes back down, and helps four or five other people go up. That's Christianity. I want to show you something that's amazing also about this. Um, let's keep reading. So verse 7 says, In godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection loved. And 8 says, For if these qualities are yours, like do you possess them, and you're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, virtue is being an effective example of Christ. A Christ bearer into his image. And if you, if you quit, you've, you're not doing the purpose for which you've been made. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind. We talked about that. Then you get to verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conform, confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Here's, here's a question. Okay, so election means God chooses you, but by obeying, your election is made sure. So how can I make God's choosing more sure? This is called subjective assurance, not objective assurance. When I believe in Jesus, by faith, I'm objectively his son or daughter. I have been called positionally placed at his right hand. I am his. But there's still me involved, subjective me, that sometimes I fail. Does he really love me? Am I really saved? I, one of my best friends from this church, he passed a number of years ago, is Terry Long. This guy loved Christ, but he always wrestled with, Pastor, am I saved? Every time I saw him, I don't know if I'm saved. It's a subjective issue. And to me, what this is saying, if you increase in these qualities, you don't wonder. And then we come to verse 11. And this, this has been something I've really been thinking a lot about the last week. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some verses say you'll be richly rewarded, you'll reach a, uh, receive a rich welcoming, and the idea is that, so when I finally die and I go to heaven, the gates are going to be open and there's going to be all kind of jewels there for me. I'm going to be crowned, and i got all kind of, you know, stuff. We, we just, I think we think in stuff terms all the time. I, you probably heard me tell this joke before, but this guy was dying, and as he's dying, he asked for two pails, and they had to fill him with all of his money of gold in gold bars. 
So as he's dying, he grabbed those things, and when he died, he rose up to heaven holding onto those gold bars, and he goes to the entrance of heaven, and the person says, why do you got road asphalt with you? Because the roads are going to be gold. I don't think it's riches in the material sense because Jesus can create anything out of word. Here's what I think the riches are that he's talking about. Go to Philippians 4, verse 1. Okay, Paul is talking to the church in Philippi. And they're, they're going through some tough times. They're going through suffering. He was, he's in prison while he's writing this. Some of the ladies are at each other's throats. That's what verse 4 or verse 3 is talking about, chapter 4. And then he says this in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, and he's talking to the, everybody in the church, and then he said, whom I love. So he's, he's displaying the last quality of the life of faith. But listen to what he says. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and I long for. You are my joy and you are my crown. Crown is often used in the New Testament as the material reward of faithfulness. What is he saying? I think he's saying people are the material reward of your faithfulness. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You are my recommendation. You display my ministry. But here he's saying, you are my crown. So here, let's apply this to verse 11. When you are faithful in the walk of faith and you get to heaven and the doors open, you'll be richly rewarded. Well, what does that mean? I believe it means those people you've affected on this earth are going to welcome you and say, thank you. Thank you. Or when, like, you're my dad. My dad had such tremendous impact. He's already there in heaven. I think when I finally get there, I'm going to say to him, Dad, you were right. Thank you. And that's a, be the greatest gem he could ever get. I read this book, Loose Titania. I just got done with it about a month ago. It's about, it's like a Titanic story. It's the sinking of the Loose Titania in World War I. The American ship Loose Titania got bombed by a German U-boat. 1,200 people died, went down. There's a story about a man who had seven kids. And when the boat was listing, he started getting all his kids on a lifeboat. Not many survived, but he made sure he'd get all his kids on a lifeboat. Seven of them. His last one was a little baby. And he took that little baby, and he gave it to a lady he didn't know to save her. Will you just take care of this baby? The boat went down, the ship's... Not many lifeboats. They went out, and he, went, he swam a long time. But the water wasn't as cold as it was in Titanic, so you could stay alive for a while. He got rescued. All the people that were in the lifeboats were ferried over to the, west co or the east coast of Ireland, and they were all getting ready there to take a, taking names. And he got, to the west, he got to the east coast of Ireland, and he starts seeing people, and he sees his daughter. He sees his other kid and his other kid. He sees his fifth kid and his sixth kid. And then all of a sudden, this lady comes up and said, this is, you handed me this child. Here's your child. There's a rich man. Because of his 
desire to see his kids saved, he has them. To me, to me, a rich person is a person, when he gets to heaven, there's going to be a welcoming committee for him that said, because of you, I, I'm in here. I was talking to one of uh, prayer partners, and he, he's talking about, ah, I don't know, I've really never led anybody to Christ, but I know this man. He's done, he talks to people about Jesus all the time. I know this man. When that guy gets to heaven, I know there's going to be a welcoming committee to say, because you talk to me at my lowest. I mean, sometimes this guy talks to people who nobody else will talk to. There's a lot of people infected in this church because of him for the gospel. I think there's going to be like welcoming parties in heaven. It's going to be a big name. It's not going to be a family reunion. It's going to be this person reunion who touched my life. I think that's going to be rich. I think that's going to be worth it all. And so the question is, what will be the riches that are waiting for you? Do you dare to go back down the hill and help somebody? They're desperate. And you've been saved from hell. Hell. 